bless you. For many of you, it will be the first time you've ever been in a service like this. I think before I actually turn to the scriptures, I would like to ask you to pray with me. This is more for my sake than yours. We've had a very excellent prayer already, but I just feel I need to pray. Heavenly Father, we approach thee now in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. For my part, Lord, I commit myself in this service without reservation to thee. I pray nothing but that thy will may be done and thy name may be glorified. Take charge of me, Lord, and use me this night simply as a vessel for thy truth and thy spirit. Touch and prepare the heart of every person here, that each one may receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save our soul. Take away by thy spirit now, Lord, any barrier, any prejudice, any preconception that would hinder the entrance of thy word. For we thank thee that the entrance of thy word giveth light, it giveth understanding unto the simple. We have also thy promise that thy word shall not return to thee void, but shall accomplish thy pleasure and prosper in the thing whereto thou hast sent it. And Lord, we claim that promise afresh tonight in Jesus' name. We bind every opposing force of the enemy that would hinder or prostrate thy purposes according to the authority vested in us by the word of God through the name of Jesus Christ. We now bind on earth every opposing, hindering force. And we thank thee that what we bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And we rejoice in thee already, Lord, for the victory which thou hast won on our behalf on the cross. We thank thee for it. And we will be careful in everything to ascribe to thee and to thee alone all the glory and all the honor through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This evening, the special nature of my message and my ministry is to bring deliverance for those who are tormented and bound by evil spirits. I think that I will begin by reading to you two verses from the New Testament describing the ministry of Jesus. Two verses which I'm going to read are Mark 1:39 and Luke 13:32. However, I'm going to read them in Philip's translation because I think in these two verses his translation is unusually vivid and illuminating. Mark 1.39 in the Phillips translation speaks about Jesus and his early ministry in Galilee and it says this, So he continued preaching in their synagogues and expelling evil spirits throughout the whole of Galilee. What I like about that, first of all, is the word continued, which is a very correct rendering of the Greek tense, which is not brought out completely in the King James Version. It emphasizes the fact that this was a continuing ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Furthermore, it emphasizes that it was directly associated with his preaching. And thirdly, it emphasizes that he did it in the synagogue. Let me repeat that. In all Galilee, a continuing feature of the ministry of Jesus was that he expelled evil spirits. This was directly connected with his preaching ministry and it was carried out not in a psychiatrist consulting room or in the privacy of a bedroom, but in the publicity of the synagogue, the recognized place of public worship of that day. I also like Philip's translation, expelling evil spirit, because the word expel brings it up to modern English, and it also brings home to us the reality of this experience. I will be speaking a little later on the personal application to you and your situation of this word expel. The other scripture that I want to read in the Phillips translation is in Luke 13:32, and these are words that were spoken by Jesus himself towards the end of his earthly ministry. And he says this, Today and tomorrow I am expelling evil spirits and continuing my work of healing, and on the third day my work 
will be finished. Notice again the word continuing. Now these words were spoken near the close of the ministry of Jesus. And they bring out once again the fact that a continuing aspect of his ministry all the time he was here on earth was the expelling of evil spirits. And that this was directly associated in this case with his ministry of curing the sick. Now I believe that Jesus perfectly represented the will of God. That everything he did was perfect. That it never can be, nor needs to be, improved upon. Some people suggest that Jesus was limited by the standards of knowledge of his age, that he was subject to limitations and superstitions, and that had he lived today, he would have done things in a very different way. In a discussion between a full gospel preacher, Brother John Osteen, who's probably known to some of you, and two ministers that took place on television some years back, one of these ministers said, Obviously, if Jesus had lived today, he wouldn't have done anything so out of date and old-fashioned as to place clay on a blind man's eyelids for healing. We have much more modern methods than that. Well, if the modern methods will open the eyes of a man born blind, that's good. But I don't know any modern methods will do it. And if the method of applying clay will do it, I'll stick with the method of applying clay. That's my decision. Personally, I do not believe that Jesus was under these limitations. I believe that he was the Son of God. I believe that he spoke the words given him by the Father, that the works that he did were done by the Father, and that it was a perfect demonstration of the model ministry. Some uh, two years or so ago, I was invited by Brother Bob Walker, the editor of Christian Life, to write an article for Christian Life on this ministry of expanding evil spirits. And in order that we might come to an understanding of the type of message that he wanted, I met him on two or three occasions and we had fellowship together. And while, if you know Bob Walker, he's a rather sober and successful businessman in his particular field, certainly not uh, what you would call an emotional or unstable type. Although I'm happy to say that he has and testifies to having received the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And... Uh, so we were talking one day, and I said in conversation, it seems to me that Jesus must have spent at least one quarter of his earthly ministry expelling evil spirits from people. And his reply was, that must surely be an underestimate. He must have spent much more than a quarter of his time doing that. Now, if Jesus would devote a quarter of his total earthly ministry or more to this one particular activity, then it must have been important. And you know why I believe Jesus expelled evil spirits? Because people had evil spirits and they needed to be delivered from them, and that was the way to do it. And you know what I believe about people today? I believe people today have evil spirits in just the same way, and they need to be delivered in just the same way. We don't need to improve on the methods of Jesus. All we need to do is continue them. And if I ever attain to the situation where I'm doing it the same way that Jesus did it, that'll be the greatest I ever hope to achieve. I do not intend to improve on the master. Now, when we come to this talk about evil spirits, there are many questions that are raised in people's minds. About no other subject is there a greater degree of ignorance in the Christian church today than this particular subject. I'm going to try in brief outline to answer some of the questions which I know arise in the minds of people. First of all, what is an evil spirit? The alternative word normally used in the Greek New Testament is the word demon, although unfortunately in the King James Version it's translated devil, but this is incorrect. The English word devil is the correct translation of the Greek word diabolos, the slanderer, and is a title of Satan alone, which is not applied to others. 
But the word demon is taken straight from the Greek word daimonion uh, and is just translated over into English letters demon and is used in the plural and is never applied to Satan. Satan is not a demon. He is a fallen angel. And he has with him in the heavenlies an army of fallen angels. But demons are not in the heavenlies. They are on earth. They are a different category of being. Where did demons come from? That's a question a lot of people want to know. The Bible does not give us any very clear or obvious answer. The Bible is a very practical book. It does not scratch an itching intellect, but it meets the needs of a hungry human heart. If you read in Exodus, the 15th chapter, you'll read that in the way out of Egypt, God's people Israel came to a lake whose name was Marah, and they could not drink of the lake, although they were desperately thirsty because the waters were too bitter to drink. Now, if you study the story, you found that the Bible never reveals why the water was bitter, but it does tell us how the waters were healed. That's the nature of the Bible. It does not tell us precisely where evil spirits came from, but it does tell us how to get rid of them, and that's the thing that we need to know. I had the privilege of ministering in uh, Lexington, Kentucky last week, and uh, there has been a very wonderful move of the Holy Spirit at Asbury College and Seminary, which is just next door to Lexington, a real sovereign move of the Spirit of God, so that for seven days and nights, Chapel services were held continuously. The chapel was never closed. And for four days, all classes were canceled because of the moving of the Spirit of God. And I had the privilege of meeting some of the young people from the college who had been involved in this move of God, which is still going on. And I talked with many of them privately. Well, not with many, but with several. First of all, I would say, as far as I was able to judge, nearly every one of the human instruments used in this revival was a believer who had received the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And in this revival, many received the baptism in the Holy Spirit, speaking with tongues. However, the the authorities at Asbury frown on speaking with tongues and have forbidden the propagation of this doctrine, even in writing. And one of the features of the revival was that when the students were gathered in the chapel, those that had the baptism were very sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And when they felt that somebody was going to receive the baptism in the chapel, those that had the baptism gathered around this person and prayed aloud in English. So that when the person receiving the baptism began to speak in tongues, the authorities couldn't hear him because of the others praying in English. And many received the baptism in the Spirit in this revival. In fact, I spoke to one of the girls who was a leader of the uh, prayer life in a dormitory of 400 girls, and she said almost all the girls in that dormitory have received the baptism in the Holy Spirit. They are not allowed to hold prayer meetings. So the Holy Spirit just brings them together, unpremeditated and unorganized, and then they pray. It's almost like the Christians behind the Iron Curtain. As a matter of fact, there's a real remarkable correspondence. And amongst other things, in this revival, as always in any real move of the Spirit of God, the presence of the enemy was brought out into the open, and evil spirits were manifested in quite a substantial number of cases and were cast out, mainly by the students. I talked to one student who had been used of God in this ministry, in the revival. He was somewhat new in this realm, and he did a few things that I would not actually recommend doing, at least not repeatedly, but I remember that I have done many of the same things myself. One of these demons, in fact many of them, named themselves and spoke out of the bodies of the persons in whom they dwelt. And this young man told me that he asked one of these evil spirits where he came from. Was he from a pre-Adamite creation? 
And the demon said, yes. Now, there are many people that believe this, and I myself think it is probable, but it is not specifically taught in the scripture, and therefore I do not believe that we should ever present it as an established doctrine. However, I personally do lean to this conclusion. There is a difference between demons and evil spirits on the one hand, and fallen angels. Angels have wings, demons do not. Angels do not move habitually on the earthly plane. Demons are earthbound. They cannot escape from the earthly plane. Furthermore, the most striking feature of demons is that they have an intense desire to occupy a body, which is not true of angels. An angel would be cramped in a physical body, but a demon intensely desires to occupy a physical body. The reason being that whatever the particular nature of that demon, it can only express itself, it can only satisfy its particular craving or propensity through a human body. For instance, a demon of alcohol must inhabit a human body to get alcohol. A demon of lust needs a human body to lust through. A demon of blasphemy needs a human tongue to blaspheme through. Whatever kind of demon it is, it cannot express itself. It is totally frustrated. It is completely restless. Jesus said it's like somebody walking through a barren, dry, waterless wilderness until it can enter a human body and express itself through that body. And rather than be totally disembodied, the New Testament clearly shows that demons would enter pigs rather than be left without a body through which to express themselves. So here is the first fact about demons or evil spirits. They are spirits that do not have bodies, but intensely desire to occupy bodies. Being spirits, they are persons. And you will find in the New Testament that they have all the normal marks or attributes of personality. They have will. The unclean spirit that has gone out of man, Jesus said in Matthew 12, says, I will return into my house from whence I came out. They have emotion. James says in the second chapter of James, the demons believe and tremble, which is the expression of very strong emotion. They have knowledge. In the 19th chapter of Acts, the evil spirit in the man that overcame the seven sons of Sceva said, Jesus I acknowledge, and Paul I know about, but who are you? They have self-awareness. For the spirits in the gathering demoniacs said, we are many, our name is Legion. And they have the ability to speak. There are many occasions in which evil spirits speak through the vocal organs of the person in whom they dwell. So you add up those five attributes, uh, will, emotion, knowledge, self-awareness, and the ability to speak, you get the complete attributes of personality. And you really cannot deal adequately with this realm of spiritual experience until you realize that in this conflict you are facing a person. You are dealing with an intelligence, and it will use its intelligence against you for your downfall and destruction in every way that it can. There are many examples that indicate that demons have intelligence. For instance, for many years as a preacher, I was tormented with a demon of depression, which would come down over me and shut me in and bind me. No one could help me. No one understood my problem. I prayed, I fasted, I did everything I could, and the more I fasted, the worse it got. Fasting did do something. It brought it out into the open, but it didn't get rid of it. And the strange thing was that if I ever let up on my consecration to the Lord and my desire to serve the Lord, the pressure lifted. 
But the more I dedicated my life to the Lord and sought to serve him, the worse the pressure became. You see, I was dealing with a personality that studied me and sought one supreme object to prevent me serving Christ effectively. A married couple that had been in the Pentecostal movement many years came to me once. I knew them both. And then the wife came to me privately and she said, You know, Brother Prince, there's something I can't understand. She said, If I ever really dedicate my life to Jesus and tell him in the privacy of my own room that I want to serve him with all my heart. My husband becomes so mean to me immediately that life is hardly bearable. But she said, I haven't told my, my, my husband anything about this consecration I've made in my heart. I don't understand it. Well, I said, your husband doesn't know about it, but the demon in your husband does. And he is fighting your consecration to the Lord. Take another example. We used to live near people once upon a time that had a little girl of about three. And she was a plague. You know, little girls of three can be plagued. When they wanted to go shopping groceries, and in those days in England, you shopped on Saturday night for groceries. Now in America, you do it Friday night. They could dress her up and take her out. She had no objection to going to the grocery store. But on Sunday morning, when they wanted to go to the full gospel church, that little girl would lie on her back on the floor, kick with her legs in the air, and scream. There was something in that little girl of three that didn't mind the grocery store, but strongly objected to the full gospel church. Another very, and another example that comes rather close home, the scripture tells us in the 11th chapter of Romans and the 29th chapter of Isaiah that there is a demon of sleep or slumber, a demon that causes people to sleep unnaturally. Oh, there's a perfectly natural kind of sleep which is good and from God. Have you ever noticed with some people that when they want to watch the late show on TV, they can sit up without falling asleep till 1 a.m.? But if they want to pray or read their Bible, they fall asleep in 10 minutes. See, there's something there that doesn't mind the late show on TV, but does mind the Bible. Let me tell you immediately, anything that persistently fights your coming to the Bible is demonic. We're absolutely for sure. Anything that deliberately and persistently would hold you back from the Bible has advertised its nature. It's demonic. I have a friend whom I know quite well, a married woman with two children. The whole family are friends of ours who went through many traumatic emotional experiences in her younger days and needed deliverance. And a layman who was a friend of mine and a friend of hers was brought to the place where he had to pray for her because she was so desperate there was no one on hand. And he told me afterwards that one of the main spirits that he had to dislodge from her was this spirit of sleep. And he said this spirit spoke out of the woman and said, don't get rid of me, I'm her salvation, which is a rather astonishing statement. But when I spoke to the woman later and we discussed this, she said, well, it's perfectly true. She said, really, when I couldn't face things, when I couldn't take things anymore, when life was too much for me, she said, I would just turn up and go to sleep and I'd sleep 16 hours sometimes. It was my escape. She said, just as somebody else will escape through alcohol or some other way, she said, sleep became my escape. And this, of course, is demonic. Any form of escape that gets you out of touch with reality, whether it be drugs or whether it be alcohol or whether it be sleep or whatever it be, is demonic. You see, what I'm trying to point out to you is that we have many clear evidences, first of all from scripture and secondly from personal experience, that we are dealing with invisible, real persons whose aim is to get inside us and control us and express their own evil propensities through us. Now, many people object when we begin to preach like this, and people come to me and they look at me and they say, Brother Prince, you have discernment. Tell me if there's anything wrong with me. Well, I want to tell you discernment doesn't operate that way. 
It is not something you can switch on and off at will. It is something that's under the sovereign control of the Holy Spirit. But when I am ministering to people in the will of God, and I have compassion for them, then God does sometimes show me the nature of their problem. But if such a person comes to me, and I begin to have a feeling of something wrong, and they say, Brother Prince, do you think I need deliverance? And I say, yes, I do. And that's really sticking my neck out, and it's only love that would make me do that. They say, do you mean I'm demon-possessed? And I say, oh no, that's a misunderstanding. And let's deal with that misunderstanding for a few moments. You see, all of us from the English-speaking nation are greatly influenced in our thinking about the Bible by the King James translation. Even if we don't read it, it's still there in the background. Now, the King James, in many ways, is an excellent translation. There never has been a better translation, but it is not perfect. And unfortunately, the King James Version in this connection uses usually some phrase like possessed with devils or possessed with an unclean spirit. Now, I've studied Greek since I was 10 years old and taught it at a university. I don't know all there is to know about Greek, but I know a certain amount. And I say emphatically that this is a misleading translation. It does not accurately represent the meaning of the Greek. In the Greek of the New Testament, there are two main phrases that are used. The first is to have an evil or an unclean spirit, just to have it. In Mark chapter 1, we also have the phrase to be in an evil or an unclean spirit, where I think the modern English translation would be to be under the influence of an unclean spirit. The other phrase is a verb, which in Greek is daimonizomai, and the obvious English translation is to be demonized. Those are the phrases, to have an unclean or an evil spirit, to be under the influence of an unclean or an evil spirit, or to be demonized. Now, none of those verbs in any way justifies the translation possess, because in English, by its association, the word possess suggests total ownership. And people naturally are somewhat aghast at the suggestion that they are totally owned or taken over by the devil. But to say that a person has an evil spirit is not the same as saying that a person is possessed by an evil spirit. Now, I want to put a little simple test to you tonight, and please notice I'm not cheating you or making fun of you. So, if you will, be honest and cooperate with me. Listen carefully. How many of you here tonight believe that you have the Holy Spirit? Would you let me see your hand? Well, praise God. That's wonderful. Now, listen carefully. Don't do anything for a moment. How many of you here tonight can say, Brother Prince, I'm totally possessed by the Holy Spirit. I'm totally controlled by the Holy Spirit. Would you raise your hand? You see, there's not one person. Now, you may be very modest, but at least this brings out a clear difference you know, between having the Holy Spirit Hammond and being totally controlled by the Holy Spirit. Well, there's an exactly parallel difference on the other side between having an evil spirit somewhere within you and being totally taken over or possessed by an evil spirit. Now, there are people, alas, that really are possessed. They are totally taken over. They are not under their own control. They cannot use their own will. They're absolutely in subjugation to Satan. Most of those people we would look for either in a prison or in a mental institution. And alas, prisons and mental institutions are full of such persons. Now, Jesus did not normally minister to people like that. This is very important to see. He did deal with one person who was in that category, and that was the Gadarene demoniac. He would have been, by modern standards, in a mental institution. But he was the exception. Notice that. The majority of such people to whom Jesus ministered were ordinary.
ordinary citizen who had their homes, their families, their businesses, their farms. They walked around the streets of Galilee. They sailed the Sea of Galilee. Or they walked in the streets of Jerusalem. They could come and go. They were not under, uh, under duress. They were not in prison. There were people like Mary Magdalene, who must have been a very smart and beautiful woman, and many, many others. There were not people whom we would classify as possessed, but thousands and thousands and thousands of them needed deliverance from evil spirits. So now we've, I trust, removed that mental block. I am not saying to anybody here tonight, you are possessed in the sense that you are totally taken over by Satan. If you were, you probably couldn't sit in this meeting. You'd be out by now. But there are many of you here tonight, I do not know how many, but I know many, that have somewhere within you an evil spirit that controls some aspect of your character or nature or emotions or attitudes or relationships or desire. And it's for your benefit we're conducting this service tonight. Now, unfortunately, because of the ignorance of the church, the suggestion that a person needs deliverance from evil spirits is rather like dubbing a person a leper. You see that woman? Brother Prince cast three demons out of her. Pitter keep clear. Don't go near her. See? Well, actually, of course, we know there's nothing worse about leprosy than other diseases. But I believe the medical profession has had to change the name of leprosy and give it another name simply to avoid this stigma that is attached to it. Actually, if you had to choose on the basis of your good opinion of yourself, it would be much better to say, I have a demon of anger that doesn't really belong to me, than to say, I am by nature a mean, ornery, angry person. It's much more flattering to your ego to suggest that you've got something in you that isn't really part of you and doesn't belong, shouldn't be there, than to attribute it to your character. It's rather as if a person were to go to a medical doctor and doctor, my body's going all crooked on the left side, it's going out of line, I'm getting crooked. And the doctor were to carry out the test and say, don't worry, your body isn't going crooked, but you've got a foreign element there, a growth that doesn't belong to you. By surgery, we can remove that growth and your body will be perfectly straight and normal again. Now that, in the physical plane, is what deliverance is in the spiritual. It's the removing of the foreign element that may make you appear crooked, but is not really part of you. So, don't fight against the suggestion that you need deliverance because the alternative is that you've got a bad character. And that really is much harder to deal with. As a matter of fact, a lot of people come running to me for deliverance because they're not willing to face their own character problem. Deliverance is not an easy way out of straightening your character up. There are both aspects in the Christian ministry. The basic problem of every sinner is the old Adamic nature, which is corrupt, morally and spiritually, and is rebellion. And every one of us, from Adam downwards, has been born into this world a rebel. We are rebels by nature. Ephesians 2, 2 and 3, we are all by nature the children of wrath, because we are all by nature the children of disobedience. Now, this Adamic nature is called in the scripture, in the New Testament, by various different names. It's called the old man, the flesh, the body, the body of sin, the body of the sins of the flesh. But where we have such phrases as the flesh or the body, it does not in those contexts mean the literal physical body, but it means this old Adamic nature which is born into every one of us. Now the only remedy for the Adamic nature is the cross, nothing else. 
The Adamic nature is so incorrigible that God has no program to reform it or to make it religious or to patch it up or to change its external clothing. The only solution God has for the old Adamic nature is execution. And this execution took place when Jesus died on the cross. Romans 6, 6, our old man was crucified with him that the body of sin might be rendered ineffective that henceforth we should not be the slaves of sin. And Galatians 5, 24, they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If it is your character, if it is your old nature that is the source of your problems, then the remedy is the cross. But in addition to the old Adamic nature, which is common to every one of us, there is a further problem, which is what I call the vultures that fasten on and feed on that carcass. Now, these vultures are the demons or the evil spirit. They have no approach to the new man in Christ. The new man in Christ is inaccessible to Satan. First John 5.18, we know that whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. But he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. There is a place in Christ, in the new creation, where the devil cannot touch you, spiritually, mentally, or physically. You're inaccessible. And if every Christian were living in that place, no Christian would ever need deliverance from evil spirits. But the truth of the matter is, most Christians are a long way away from that place. There is no need, as far as God's provision is concerned, for any Christian to have an evil spirit. There is no need for any Christian to be physically sick. But about 20% of the professing church are sick, and seriously sick. And I would say for every Christian that's sick, there are probably two that need deliverance from evil spirits. It is not because there is no provision. It is because Christians have not been taught how to avail themselves of the provision which God has made. Now, we have to understand the particular nature of the problem that we're dealing with, because the remedy is different. If your problem is simply and solely the old nature, the only remedy is the cross. But if your problem is a vulture that's fastened its claws onto that old nature and is dipping its beak in your flesh, then the remedy is deliverance. Get rid of it. Now, you cannot cross the remedy. You cannot cast out the old man. It is not scriptural. It cannot be done. Nor can you crucify a demon. That is not scriptural. It cannot be done. You cannot reckon a demon dead because it isn't dead. It's false. Demons don't die. So, you have to decide which is the real cause of my problem. Is it merely the old Adamic nature? Then I have no solution but the cross. I must crucify my flesh. I must reckon myself to be dead indeed under sin, but alive under God. On the other hand, if my problem is caused by an evil spirit, I cannot reckon that evil spirit dead. It's nonsense. It doesn't work. I have to get that evil spirit out. So, we come to the place where we naturally want to know, now, this problem that I have, what is its cause? And I would suggest to you that you can think in these terms. If you have been willing to commit your life to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and if, in addition, you have been baptized in the Holy Spirit, and if you are sincerely desirous of leading a life that is pleasing to God, serving Him and doing His will, and yet, Within your personality, there are problems that you never can completely master. There are areas within you of which you never are fully and permanently in control. There are things within you that seem to fight against all your consecration and your sincere desire to serve Jesus Christ 
and you have struggled and wrestled with these things time after time, but never have found full and permanent relief, then the probability is that you have, without realizing it, been confronted with an evil spirit. And you cannot get complete victory until you deal with the problem in the scriptural way. The scriptural way is deliverance. It's the casting out of the evil spirit. Now, over the years, I have put together a few features which commonly indicate the presence of an evil spirit in a person's life. Uh, this is not a complete, exact, scientific description because I do not believe that is possible. It's based on scripture and it's based on experience. I have been in this ministry now about six or seven years. And in that time, I have dealt with literally thousands of people who needed deliverance. And I've listened to hundreds and hundreds of stories of people with their various problems and difficulties. And on the basis of a study of scripture and experience, I have put together a little kind of outline which I will offer you now. It's the best I can do. It isn't perfect. And if you can improve on it, you do it. If I were to ask the one single feature that most surely indicates the presence of an evil spirit, I would say restlessness. People that have evil spirits are normally restless. They do not know the meaning of true relaxation. They do not have that deep, settled inner peace and rest, which is the birthright of every child of God. Restlessness can express itself in many ways. I always notice when the Spirit of God begins to move into a service like this, some people actually cannot sit still. Another form of restlessness is the restlessness of the tongue. A person who's always running out at the mouth has a problem. You can be sure of that. I worked with a medical doctor in the Second World War in North Africa as a medical orderly, and for about six months we were working with dysentery patients only right out in the desert. Of course, medical methods have changed a little since then, but they were fairly primitive. This doctor was a rather brilliant doctor, and he was quite friendly to me, and every morning I had to go around with him to all the patients in turn. And as he came to each patient, I got to know beforehand what two questions he would always ask. The first one was, good morning, how are you? And he never listened to the answer for that. He wasn't interested. The second one was, show me your tongue. And on the basis of the tongue, he formed a general estimate of the patient's condition. Now, I think God sometimes deals with you and me the same. He says, how are you? But he's not impressed by the answer. The next thing he says is, show me your tongue. And when he sees that, he's got a pretty good idea of our spiritual condition. See, the Bible says this, if any man can tame the tongue, the same as a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. And if you really cannot stop talking, there's a problem. It's comical to me because when people come to me with their problems, the presence of God in me stirs up the thing in them and they, they talk twice as fast and twice as much as they normally would. And then I have very little doubt that there's a problem there. In addition to these, I would say that the activity of demons in a human life is compulsive or obsessive. It pushes. It drives. You find yourself doing things without really knowing why you're doing them. And if you stopped and thought, maybe you wouldn't be doing that thing. And very often, it's habitually compulsive. Of course, the extreme example of this is the alcoholic and so on, who is continually compelled by a drive for alcohol. I was talking to a lady the other day who had a demon of gluttony. And she'd come to me for help, a dentist's wife. And she said, you know, this problem has tormented me for years. But she said, I've learned a lot about myself. 
But she said, I can almost stand back and watch myself go to the refrigerator and take something I know full well I don't need and put it in my mouth. And she said, I'm almost like watching somebody else do it. Well, that's it, you see. It's compulsive. It's unreasonable. Now, anger can be like that. To take another example, any one of us will get angry at times. But there may be very many reasonable causes of anger. Well, that's not demonic. But if a person suddenly and unreasonably becomes angry for no real reason and just simply cannot control it, may even bite the lip or tongue afterwards, then you have something demonic. The same is true of fear. Fear is a natural emotion, and within its, its limits it's good because it's a warning. But when a person is subject to irrational fear, and when it's tormenting, and when it's obsessive, then you can suspect, in fact, you can really be sure of the presence of a demon. There are three things that I say that demons do. They defile, they torment, and they enslave. And if you have something in your life that is obviously against your will, in spite of your effort, doing any or all of those things, you begin to suspect the nature of your problem. Let me say it again. They defile, they torment, and they enslave. Now, another thing which has been borne in upon me more and more over recent years is the a tremendous influence of childhood experiences. So that I would say with pe when people come to me with serious problems, well over 50% of them can be traced back to childhood. And human nature is such that a child has a weak spiritual defense. And if he's subjected or she is subjected to persistent demonic pressure, it is almost impossible for that child to keep those demons out. Now, one thing I've discovered is this, that an atmosphere of disharmony and strife between father and mother automatically creates an atmosphere in which the children are subject to demon pressure. You don't need to do more. You can be most religious. You can go to the best Baptist church or assembly of God in the city. But if at home there is disharmony and quarreling and strife and bitterness between husband and wife, you can be sure that the children are exposed to demonic pressure. It cannot be otherwise. Where envy and strife is, the Bible says, there is confusion and every evil work. Many times a person that has been under these pressures in childhood will, in later life, find Jesus Christ, the Savior, and receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, when a person has an experience of salvation, many times great deliverances occur right then. And that's really the best time to get delivered. Further on, when a person receives a baptism of the Holy Spirit, many times a person receives deliverance prior to receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's why a person sometimes acts strangely receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not the Holy Spirit that makes the person behave strangely. It's the other spirit that is being driven out by the Holy Spirit that causes that strange behavior. For instance, I was at the church in this city on Sunday night, and I've preached in Pentecostal church for well over 20 years. I saw a young man do something I've heard about and never seen. You know we're called holy rollers. Well, I have very, very rarely seen a person roll in a Pentecostal church. But this past Sunday, I saw a young Chinese man, boy, roll from the altar to the door of the church. And there was nobody there touching him. It was the most fantastic thing. And he was actually in process of receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And there were clearly two forces at work in that young man. One was the Spirit of God, and the other was manifestly demonic. He was lying on the floor and writhing and making movements reminiscent of a lizard. One of the ladies there was confused. She said, I don't understand. What is this? She said, is that the Holy Spirit? I said, part of it is the Holy Spirit, and part of it is the exact opposite. 
What's happening is that this young man has had a demon of lust. And as the Holy Spirit moves in, the demon of lust is being brought to the surface. And if we pray together, it'll go. And within half an hour, it left. The young man was then free and began to speak in tongues. Now, if a demon is forced out into the open, it may have to go. But they're so sneaky that if they're given the choice between being forced out into the open or, as it were, going underground, they'll always go underground. And so some people, even though they have experienced salvation, and even though they have experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit, still have within them demonic presences from which they need deliverance. Now I know, as I said last night, this is contrary to many people's doctrine. But I've said many times, if your theology doesn't agree with the facts, it's your theology which has to change, because the facts don't. The Bible does not say that a person who has the Holy Spirit cannot have any other spirit. In fact, there are various places which I'm not going to deal with tonight, which clearly indicate that a person who has the Holy Spirit can also be under the influence of other spirits. I will not go into this tonight because my aim is not to prove my theology right, but to help suffering humanity. And I've learned by experience that the people that want theological arguments are not usually the people that really want deliverance. And I'm interested in the people that want deliverance rather than the people that want to straighten out my theology. That's my aim. Now I'm going to give you a little further instruction on the particular areas of deliverance and then I'm going to show you how, if you need deliverance, you can receive it. The Bible compares the inner nature of a human being to a city. Proverbs 16.32 says, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without wall. You see there, the area of the spirit within man is compared to a city. And a person who has no rule over himself within is like a city that no longer has any defenses. It cannot keep any person or thing out that wants to move in. Now, in most cases, a habitual dope addict is like that. Just to take an example, a person who has to support the habit of dope not merely becomes the slave of dope, but usually becomes the slave of crime and lust and often also unnatural sexual practices, and their whole personality is like a city with the whole defense is gone. Almost anything demonic can move in and occupy them. And therefore, for that reason, most addicts do not need deliverance merely from dope. Often it's a much more serious problem to get them delivered from other things, such as deception or immorality and other things. And it's a strange thing, but I have dealt myself with some addicts that more easily were delivered from heroin than from nicotine. Possibly because they didn't like the heroin, but they did like the nicotine. However, I want to take this picture for a moment of a city and use it to illustrate the situation inside you and me. I always choose the city of Chicago as an example because I lived there for a short while, and I'm roughly familiar with the topography of Chicago, but any big American city would be a good example. In any big American city, there are different areas with different occupations and different types of inhabitants. For instance, Chicago, there's the Loop with all the big stores and just a little west with all the big banks and commercial undertakings. And then you move out in any direction from there and you find a particular kind of situation. You move a little south, you have the big warehouses, factories, and depots. You move a little further south and you have a residential area which is about 80 or 90 percent colored. Or you go back to the center and you move west and you get to an area which is mainly occupied by Poles. And most of the street names are Polish. Or you go back to the center and you move north and you get to an area which is primarily Jewish. And a little beyond that you get to an area which is basically Swedish. 
And then, if you go beyond those, you get to the various suburbs. And the suburbs have their different type of occupation according to the size of house, the price of the houses, the nearness to a freeway, and so on. So the total picture of Chicago is a picture of various different areas with various different types of occupants. Now, you may have the right mayor in the city hall in Chicago, Robert J. Daly, but he may not have full control over the city. And in fact, everybody knows in Chicago that he doesn't. There may be a mafia operating in certain areas that just control those areas contrary to the will of the appointed legal authority. And you, too, can have your mafia within you. You may have the Lord Jesus Christ in the mayor's parlor, but in some areas of your personality, there's a mafia gang at work. And one thing I'll tell you about evil spirits is they operate in gangs. If one goes out, when he comes back, he'll bring his gang of seven with him. And experience has shown me that if you find one, you should immediately start to look for the rest of the gang. I'll give you a few examples. If you find rebellion, you look for resentment, for hatred, and they'll be there. Unless the process hasn't gone on long enough. Or you find depression, you look for self-pity, loneliness, despair, and suicide. And unless the process has been checked, you'll get there. Various different gangs. I have never found a person who had a demon of blasphemy who did not have a demon of mockery. I have never yet found it. They're like twins. They always go together. Now let me for a moment uh, suggest to you certain main areas of human personality. I'm not a psychiatrist, nor am I a psychologist. I'm just a preacher speaking from experience. But I'll tell you one thing. I wouldn't trade my experience for anybody's theory. The Bible says, buy the truth and sell it not. And I've paid a price for the truth I have, and I don't sell it for anybody's theory. The first main attitude I would speak about is, the first main area I would speak about would be what I call attitudes, emotions, and relationships. Now, all strongly negative, destructive attitudes and emotions can be demonic. Probably the primary one is fear. The Bible says, fear hath torment, and it certainly does. Others I have already mentioned, resentment, hatred, rebellion. And if you have resentment, you normally resent the people closest to you. You do not resent the man that delivers the milk because he doesn't bother you. But you do resent the man that shares your bed because he's continually in your way. It, that is normal. It's the nature of resentment that you resent the people closest. And these problems are normally within the close family circle of parents, husband, wife, or children, or in-law. There's the problem of depression, self-pity, loneliness, despair, defeat, suicide. There's the problem of anger, violence, and murder. Now, many persons have a demon of murder who never have committed murder. The demon does not come in because you've committed murder. It comes in to make you commit murder. How many times when a murder is committed, a person will say afterwards, I don't know what made me do it. Something took me over. That was the demon. And it may have been there for 20 years before it achieved its object. The next one in will be violence. And the next one after violence will be murder. And let me say, not for anybody's glory, that I myself was delivered from all three. Anger was my basic problem. That demon entered me when I was two years old, when my father teased me. Another very important area is the area of sex. Now, man is a sexual being. And sex in itself is not evil. It is good. Please understand that. We read in the record of creation that God created them male and female, created he them, and at the end of creation he saw everything that he had made, and it was all very good. That includes their sex. 
Sex is not evil. It is good. And anybody who thinks they're very pure because they have no natural sex desires, in my opinion, is probably in need of deliverance. It's just as abnormal to have none as to have too much. Now, Jesus did say there were those that have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake, but they're in a special category. But sex is such a powerful force in human life that if the devil can get in and get control there, then he has a major share of control of the personality. Now, in regard to sex, I want to say this also. It is not a sin to be tempted. Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. And all points include sexual temptation, but he never sinned. And even if you should sin and fall, that does not mean that you need deliverance from an evil spirit. All you have to do is go to Jesus, confess, repent, he will forgive you, blot it out, and cleanse you, and that's finished. You do not need to be condemned, you do not need to feel guilty. But if you become enslaved, so that no, no matter how many times you repent, and no matter how many times you pray, you never get lasting, permanent deliverance, then you have a demon. In my personal opinion, all forms of sexual aberration and abnormality are demonic without a single exception. Every form of homosexuality I believe to be demonic. And I've seen many people delivered from homosexual spirits. The difficulty with the homosexual is to get him really to renounce it. They like to hang on to it. I must also say this. I have found by repeated experience that one of the most deep-seated sexual problems is masturbation. Now, I don't care what psychologists say. I know that if this becomes enslaving, it is demonic. And sometimes it is terribly enslaving. Furthermore, it produces repercussions in the personality because a person wants to leave, lead a clean, pure life. They're continually tripped up by this particular habit and they feel a sense of guilt and condemnation and hopelessness and despair that affects the whole of their personality. But the root is in this particular habit. I will mention this. In Chicago, my wife and I ministered for some weeks to a young woman who had about everything you could ever think of. She was a prostitute. She was a lesbian. She was a dope addict. She was living in a hotel, enslaved. She couldn't get out. And yet, in a marvelous way, the Lord reached her and saved her, and she was delivered. And today, she is living for God, a clean, pure, victorious life. And my wife and I and others ministered to her for several nights for full deliverance. Various of these unclean spirits went out of her. But the last one to leave her was masturbation. And it took two hours to get this one spirit. And she was in agony, stretched out on the floor, and saying, Don't leave me. Don't leave me. Stay with me. It hasn't gone yet. Now, that woman had been delivered from all the normal addictions, heroin, alcohol, dope, far more easily than this last sex spirit that went out. So do not underestimate the power of this. Finally, there is the area of physical infirmity. Now, not all sicknesses are caused by demons, but many are. In the gospel, Jesus at various times dealt with these things as evil spirits. Deafness, blindness, dumbness, an impediment in speech, and paralysis of the spine. Now, he did not deal with them as evil spirits in every case, but in certain cases. And my experience is that certain things are normally indicative of the activity of evil spirits. Now, I am a layman, not a doctor, and there are doctors here tonight. I'm merely getting a layman's opinion based on experience. Strangely enough, I have discovered almost all allergies are demonic. 
And I have a very good up-to-date testimony from Dr. Shumate of Columbus, Georgia, who's a Baptist medical doctor. And if you can convince a Baptist medical doctor on this point, you've done pretty well. I preached on this, that allergies are demonic, at the Tennessee CFO retreat in Tokoa, Georgia last year. Now, he had a wheat allergy. He could not eat anything with wheat in it without immediately having a serious physical reaction. So he told me afterwards, he said, I decided to see if this thing was true. I came forward, prayed your deliverance prayer, and started eating wheat. And he said, I've been eating wheat ever since without any evil effect. He and his wife are now deeply involved in the ministry of delivering others, although he still continues with his medical practice at the same time. His wife, through the ministry of Brother Don Basham, who's a friend of mine, had a fantastic deliverance from a Ouija board. She was a good Baptist for years, taught Sunday school in the Baptist church. And this is her testimony very briefly. Don has it written out in a letter which she has given him authority to read out publicly and to print. And yet, though serving as a Baptist Sunday school teacher and a member of the Baptist church, and doing her best to live for God, she confessed that she never really felt sure that God ever answered her prayer. And she had an ever-increasing struggle to read her Bible. Furthermore, she had a very negative and difficult attitude towards her husband and children. The ministry of deliverance was made real to the shoemates by the deliverance of the husband from this allergy. And after that, God dealt with them and showed them there were many other areas in their lives in which they both needed deliverance. But in spite of this, Mrs. Shoemate never could overcome these basic problems, the feeling that God was so far away when she prayed, the intense difficulty to force herself to read her Bible and a negative attitude towards her husband and children. So that if her husband would say, Honey, do you love me? She was terribly embarrassed because she felt if she answered yes, she was being insincere. And if she said no, she hurt his feelings. And yet she was a good that. And one day when Brother Don Basham was preaching and speaking about the evils of these satanic practices, seeking divination through Ouija boards and fortune telling and so on, she said she was sitting in the meeting and it was as if a neon light went on in her mind and it just flashed. Ouija board, Ouija board, Ouija board, Ouija board. And something rose up in her that seemed to be choking her. She had to run out of the meeting, run to the ladies' room and expel this thing. She said from that moment, complete peace was restored to her. The problem of prayer vanished. The Bible became her best friend and her attitude to her husband changed instantly. All brought about by deliverance from the spirit of divination that came in through the Ouija board. Now, you could say that's fantastic, but I'll tell you that you do not have experience to estimate the power of these things. In Lexington, Kentucky, the other day, a very fine gentleman came to me, a Catholic, and he said, you know, I've had salvation, he said, and I've had the baptism, but he said, I don't speak in tongues. Well, to me, that's an incomplete baptism. Well, I said, do you want to speak in tongues? And he said, yes, I do, he said, but every time I want to, something seems to stop me. I asked him one question. I said, did you ever play with the Ouija board? He said, oh, yes, but only when I was a child, and it was only a joke. So I said, well, Father Dennis Bennett says, sure, you just counted the tiger's teeth for a joke, but it's a dangerous joke. Well, he said, do you think that could be it? I said, definitely. He said, what shall I do? I said, will you renounce this contact, confess it as a sin, and loose yourself from the influence that came upon you through it? He said, yes. He did it. I put my hand on him, prayed, and he spoke fluently and effortlessly in another tongue. From that moment on, there was the barrier that was between him and liberty and the Holy Spirit. Uh, let me return to the subject of physical problems for a moment. I know from personal experience that back infirmity can be an evil spirit. I was delivered from it. I had a remarkable deliverance years back in the presence of one of the, the best 
specialist in the spine in London, England. I was praying with him to receive the bath from the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of God came upon me. I didn't anticipate it. I didn't know I had this problem. And the Spirit of God gave me a tremendous, visible, physical deliverance in his presence. And afterwards he said, I couldn't have done it better myself. It was a wonderful testimony from an expert to the operation of the Holy Spirit. And a weakness that I've had in my back, I never really understood. I've had it there for well over 30 years. Disappeared. I've seen many delivered from back infirmity. I've seen their spines released, set free. Other things which I consider to be demonic, in most cases, are tumors, ulcers. But you see, a man with an ulcer, that's never his root problem. Always resentment or bitterness, or unforgiveness, or criticism. And somebody said the problem with a man with an ulcer is not what's the man eating, but what's eating the man. I prayed with a Roman Catholic last summer for deliverance, a young man who had a very hard childhood, very brutally treated by his parents. Many evil spirits went out of him. Then he said, Brother Prince, I have an ulcer. He said, I can't eat anything except the most bland diet. And I wasn't even thinking. I didn't have time to stop and think. I said, you ulcer demon, come out of this man in the name of Jesus. He went and ate a solid meal and he's been eating solid ever since. I met him in Lexington, Kentucky. He's perfectly healthy and happy. I didn't even reason it out. It just slipped out of my mouth before I had time to think about it, which is usually the best way. I also believe that most forms of heart attack are demonic. Also cramps and unnatural tormenting pain. There is a demon of pain. It has spoken to me out of person. And if you have a pain for which there is no medical explanation, cannot be uh, revealed by any form of medical diagnosis. You see, no medical diagnosis can diagnose demons. Now, there are many physical conditions which have physical explanation, and for them you need healing. Jesus has made a double provision. He said, these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. They shall cast out demons. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. You shouldn't lay hands on a demon. You don't want the demon to recover. You cast it out. But if the person is sick, you lay hands on them. I'm not saying that it's wrong to lay hands on people with evil spirits, but I'm saying you don't lay hands on the demon to get it healed. You get it out. Now, I cannot go further with this. I've really covered a tremendous amount of ground, and time is moving on, although it's still quite early. So now, I'm going to come to the practical question of how you can be delivered. I do not argue with people normally. I do not tell people, you need deliverance. What I do is hold up the mirror and let people look in it. And if I have to argue with you, you wouldn't be right for deliverance anyhow. But if you've seen the true nature of your need and you're tired of it, then you're right. If you're not convinced, I would suggest that maybe you come back tomorrow night. I am not forcing this on you by no means. I have enough customers without running after them. I want to say, just not to boast, but simply as a matter of testimony, that I have two files in my drawers at home, and both of them contain maybe 30 or more letters of explicit testimony from people all over the United States of what deliverance has done for them. And they are not necessarily ignorant people. There are medical doctors, teachers, ministers, and others whose testimonies are included in those letters. I know it worked. I'm not theorizing. I know. It worked in me, and it can work in you. I'm not ashamed to acknowledge that I needed deliverance. I was happy to find out the source of my problem. Sometimes I've discovered my own problem through ministering to others. That may sound fantastic, but it's true. I remember that in Canada some years back, I was asked to minister to a young woman who had been let out of a mental institution, especially to come to the meeting. And I ministered to her in the pastor's office afterwards, and I began to command these spirits to name themselves, and they named themselves, and I was familiar with them. There was dejection and despair and loneliness and self-pity and uh, 
suicide and uh, many others. And I was just going through the procedure and the next one named itself and its name was Tension. And when this demon named Tension, something in me did a little flip. And I thought, that's a very useful piece of information. So I didn't do anything about it at the time, but when I got back to my hotel the room that night, I took definite steps to eliminate tension from me. And I noticed a very definite change. Before that, when I was going to preach, people better not come and speak to me for the last half hour, because I was all tensed up, getting ready. My wife and family knew to leave me alone. Don't come and trouble the bear at that time. But from that deliverance onwards, I can walk into a meeting totally relaxed and just walk up to the platform without any of this pressure building up. So, through helping others, I got help myself. Tension is a very common problem of ministers. Most ministers live under such pressures that unless they're on their guard and know what to guard against, tension will build up in them. Now I'm going to come to the conditions for deliverance. If you want to buy one of my little books called Expelling Demons, It'll only cost you 25 cents, and these conditions that I'm going to mention are outlined there, only briefly. The outline is there. I always give these six conditions. I was ministering in North Carolina once, and a brother said to me, and it was a very typical American form of speech. Uh, that's why I've always remembered it, because no Britisher would ever say that. But he said, brother, if it works, don't fix it. And uh, I took that piece of advice. It works, so I don't fix it. I know it works. Now, let me say, the first one... First condition is humility, and that's your responsibility. Do not pray to God to make you humble, because he cannot do it. Humility comes by an inward decision of your will. The Bible says, humble yourself. And this is important, because there may come a moment this evening when you have to make a choice. And the choice will be between your dignity and your deliverance. And if you choose dignity before deliverance, the basic reason is pride. But if you humble yourself, you'll accept deliverance and let dignity go, because... Dignity soon comes back again afterwards. The second condition is honesty. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, and he works with the truth. Jesus said, ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. I've discovered that people that never come to the point and never come out with the whole story are very hard to deliver. But people that will tell you everything without excuse or reservation or whitewashing always get delivered. My advice is this. Call a spade a spade and not an agricultural implement. And if that doesn't mean anything, call it by the same name that you call it in your husband and you call it by the right name. The worse you call it, the quicker you'll get delivered from it. But if it's some nice, polite, social vice, which doesn't sound too bad, you probably won't get delivered from it. The third condition is confession of sin. And this is obligatory. It may sound old-fashioned, but God requires it. Now, God does not require it because he wants to discover what sins you've committed. Some people think that, but you see, God knows what you've committed already. And when you tell God you haven't surprised him and you haven't shocked him, that's wonderful. He knew it all beforehand, and he still loves you. The confession is not for his sake, but for yours. Because as long as you carry this unconfessed sin around, you cannot be delivered. Now, there's one particular, two particular areas of confession I want to mention briefly from experience. And I tell people at this point, listen, I didn't make the rules. I try to interpret them. If you object to the rules, deal with the one that made them, and that's God. But don't get angry with me. But I have discovered by experience two kinds of sin that apparently God always requires to be specifically confessed. First of all, if either partner in a marriage has been unfaithful to the other, God requires that the unfaithful partner confess to the other. And if there are any men in that category here, I'll tell you from experience, brother, you never surprise your wife. Women always know, deep inside. They may not know with their mind, but there's something inside a woman that always knows when a husband has been unfaithful. So it's not so bad as you think it is. 
Secondly, and I say this again on the basis of experience, if a woman has deliberately procured an abortion, God rates that as murder, and it has to be confessed. God will not withhold deliverance, but the failure to confess this is a barrier to deliverance. Understand me, I'm not talking about contraception. I'm talking about where a baby is on the way and its life is deliberately taken. Now, I'm not a Roman Catholic. I have no specific theories. I have just discovered this by experience. That's all. My wife and I could tell you together of many cases where we could not get a woman delivered until this specific thing was brought out into the open and dealt with. And then deliverance followed immediately. The next condition is renunciation of sin. Taking a definite, total stand against your own sin. Hating your sin as God hates it. God will not deliver you from something that you enjoy and wish to go on doing. Deliverance will not come. You have to take a definite stand against it. The next condition is one that we should do with at length, but I do not have time. It's forgiveness of other people. You are only forgiven by God in the same proportion as you forgive other people. Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, after this manner, pray ye, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. God only forgives you as you forgive others. And at the end of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said, for if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father also will forgive you. If ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. That is absolutely clear. And in Mark 11:25, Jesus said this, When ye stand praying, if ye have aught against any, forgive. Now, aught against any leaves nothing out. And if you have any unforgiveness in your heart, it is a barrier to your deliverance. This is the commonest single reason why people seek and fail to receive deliverance is that they retain a grudge, resentment, unforgiveness in their heart against some other person. And usually it's a close person. Many, many people go through life with unforgiveness against their parents. Sometimes they don't even realize it's there until the Holy Spirit brings them out. Many times a woman resents or un a husband or a husband resents his wife. Very often there's resentment carried on from parents to children. You have to make a decision. Do you want to be delivered? If you do, make up your mind to forgive. In Matthew 18, Jesus said the unforgiving servant who was forgiven six million dollars and would not forgive a debt of ten dollars was delivered to the tormentors. And he said, so likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you do not from your hearts forgive every man his brother their trespasses. The tormentors are the demons. The unforgiving Christian is delivered by God to the demons. And if God has delivered you to the demons, there's no creature that can get you out. You have to meet the condition. You have to forgive. Just decide whether it's worth doing it or not. People say, Brother Prince, I don't feel I can forgive. I have good news for you. You don't have to feel it. You have to will it. That's all. Many times I say to a person, for instance, have you forgiven your husband or have you forgiven your father? Oh, yes, I love my father. I pray for my father. I ask God to forgive me. I realize he didn't understand it. I say, you haven't answered my question. I didn't ask you whether you'd ask God to forgive your father. I said, did you forgive your father? And many times I have difficulty in getting people to see that this is the issue. You don't have to pray to God to forgive your father. That's entirely between God and your father. What you have to do is forgive your father yourself. Well, you say, Brother Prince, I just don't feel I can do it. Listen, it is not feeling. It's a decision and an expression through your lips. I give this example. Suppose that I have borrowed from you $1,000. And you have my IOU for $1,000. You can sit there in Brown presence and say, Brother Prince, I love you. Brother Prince, I pray for you. Brother Prince, I realize you didn't mean to do it. Brother Prince, I'm asking God to forgive you. I could care less. You know what I'm interested in? What you do with my IOU. The moment you tear that up, it's finished. 
Forgiveness is tearing up the IOU. I preached on this once, and a woman came to me afterwards, and she said, Brother Prince, I've just got rid of about $30,000 while you were preaching. But she walked out of that meeting a happy, free woman for the first time for about 15 years. A woman will fade away while my husband ruined my life. He gave me hell for 15 years and left me with the children and ran off with another woman. You know what my answer to that is? So what? He ruined 15 years of your life? Do you mean to let him ruin the rest of it as well? Because if you don't forgive him, he will ruin the rest of your life. It's not the person who's unforgiven that suffers. It's the person who's unforgiving. You better make your mind up, lady, and do it tonight. Take that IOU, tear it in two. In the presence of God tonight, drop it in the nearest wastepaper basket and walk out a free person. It's wonderful to know you're free. An unforgiving, bitter, resentful person is never free. The last condition is call on the name of the Lord for deliverance. This is the promise of Scripture, Joel 2.32. It shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. Whosoever includes you. There is not a person here tonight who cannot be delivered if they will meet the conditions of God. Because whosoever shall call shall be delivered. Now I'm going to review those conditions very quickly and I'm going to close my message. I have preached for a considerable length of time and I'll tell you I've got a lot in. I haven't wasted much time tonight. I've been fasting and waiting upon God for this meeting because this is a crucial meeting here tonight. The destiny of men and women for time and eternity is going to be settled here tonight. Let me go through the conditions again. Number one, humility. Number two, honesty. Number three, confession of sin. Number four, renunciation of sin and everything evil. That includes every contact with Satan. The Ouija board, the horoscope, the palm reader, the seance, ESP, hypnosis, the whole bag of works. Renounce it. If you've got any of those books in your house, tell God now. You'll go home and burn them right away. Don't give them away. Why poison somebody else? I'm going to deal with this at length tomorrow, but I just mentioned this tonight. The fifth condition, forgiveness of others. Regard to burning books, I just have to mention, I dealt with a woman the other day. When I said, will you burn your books? She said, they're worth eight or nine thousand dollars. She said, I've got precious old manuscript. I said, how much is your soul worth? And that's what I'd say to you tonight. How much is your soul worth? She got a measure of deliverance and went home. And I said, God is so faithful, he'll not complete your deliverance till you burn those books. He'll not take you off the hook, because he knows how weak you are. Finally, call on the name of the Lord. Now I'm going to close this meeting, and I'm going to offer the opportunity of deliverance to anyone here tonight who feels the need of it. As this meeting closes, if you are uncomfortable, ill at ease, you don't feel you want to be here any longer, please feel free, quietly but without embarrassment, to get up and walk out. Particularly, I want to warn you, if you are in an opposed, critical, mocking spirit, you had better leave. It's not a safe place for you. But if you are reverent, and humble, you are as safe as the rock of ages. Now I have given you warning, and anything that may happen afterwards of an evil consequence because of your wrong attitude is your responsibility and not mine. My aim is purely positive to help those that need help and are willing to be helped. And now I'm going to ask that you all pray. And I would like everybody quietly and reverently praying, not looking around, not wondering if your neighbor needs deliverance, but occupied tonight for a few moments with your own spiritual condition. And if you are here tonight now, and in the light of what I've said, you believe that there's a problem in your life that is to be explained by the presence of evil spirits, and you sincerely desire to be delivered from them and to live for God, and you would like prayer and ministry tonight, I want you to raise your hand, please, right now. Praise God. I thank God for that. Those of you that have raised your hand, I want you to take the next step. Stand up and walk out to the front. 
Do not be embarrassed. There are many of you, scores of you here tonight. I have no desire to embarrass anyone or make a spectacle of anyone here tonight. I'm just doing it the most practical way that I know how. Now, if there are those that do not wish to be here any longer while these are walking up to the front, it would be a good opportunity for you to slip out at the back or at one of the side doors. Now, it is immediately obvious that I could not effectively minister to all these people individually. And thank God I don't need to. I am not the deliverer. There is one deliverer and only one, and he is Jesus Christ. And if you need deliverance, you come to the deliverer. He has said, him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. If you sincerely come in faith to him as deliverer, he will receive you. And he will do what he has promised to do. He will deliver you. Now, this is the way I want to do it. I want to lead you in a prayer. And I want you to repeat this prayer out loud after me. You are not praying to me, of course. You are praying to Jesus Christ, the deliverer. By this prayer, you will be coming to him for deliverance. When you have completed the prayer, you are in his presence for deliverance. After this, do not go on praying. You can pray yourself out of deliverance just as you can pray yourself out of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Deliverance is effected by the power of the Holy Spirit. Even when Jesus was on earth, he said in Matthew, the 12th chapter, the 28th verse, If I, by the Spirit of God, expel demons. He does it by the Spirit of God. Therefore, when you pray this prayer, Jesus will send the Spirit of God to you to effect your deliverance. Now, your deliverance will come if you cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Those of you that have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you will understand what I mean. When you prayed for the baptism, the Holy Spirit came, and you received the baptism as you cooperated with the Holy Spirit. You yielded to him your voice and your vocal organs, and the baptism came. But had you resisted the Holy Spirit, you would not have received the baptism. Now, precisely the same is true of deliverance. Deliverance comes through the Holy Spirit, but to receive your deliverance, you must cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Now, in receiving the Holy Spirit, you're receiving the right spirit within. But in deliverance, you're getting the wrong spirit out. Uh, a lady came to me the other day with a boy of six for deliverance. And she said, I'm afraid he's too young to understand. So I sat and talked with them for about ten minutes. And on the way home, the boy said to his mother, Mother, I understand. He said, if you want the Holy Spirit, you breathe him in. And if you want to get the bad spirits out, you breathe them out. He understood far better than his mother. And that's precisely the way it is. A spirit is a breath. And you can expel breath. That's why I like the word expel. You remember I said it was such a good word? If you inhale tobacco smoke into your lungs and you don't want it there, what do you do? You expel it. What is that? A decision of your will and an action of your muscle. You breathe out. Now, when you begin to do this, it may be that the first few breaths will be just pure human breath. But as you go on, something else will be blended with it. And that's the enemy. And that's what you want out. Now, sometimes deliverance is almost imperceptible. Just a little yawn, a little sigh, just a breathing out. I've prayed with people that I thought would be real hard cases, and they gave about three sharp out breaths, and they were delivered. I couldn't believe it was so easy. And other people that I thought would be easy, it was a struggle. Depends so much on your willingness to move in with the Holy Spirit. Now, when deliverance comes, there are various different manifestations that sometimes take place. I'm not encouraging manifestations, but if you suppress them, you suppress your deliverance. If you feel a desire to yawn, yawn. If a sobbing comes, don't check it. Let it go. That's the spirit of fear, normally. It normally comes out that way with a sobbing noise. You may feel an intense impulse to scream. Now, normally, it's not good manners to scream in church, but tonight... 
scream if you feel this impulse, not for the sake of displaying yourself or being dramatic. Because if you suppress that scream, you're suppressing your problem. This is perfectly scriptural. Acts 8, 7, unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many that were possessed. Very often it comes out with a kind of coughing. If you begin to cough, and for no normal physical medical reason, that's your deliverance coming. Don't suppress it. Cough it out. And I'm going to be very down to earth. Frequently, there's a little slime that comes up. The best thing to do is to spit that out. We'll provide you with Kleenex or you've got a handkerchief or something, if necessary. I'm not encouraging you to do it, but if it comes, don't suppress it because you're fighting your own deliverance. And once you are delivered and you know the burdens have lifted and you're free, immediately thank God and dedicate your life to Jesus. Don't walk out of here unsurrendered because the enemy will seek to come back. And if you really know you've been set free, leave this place, the frontier, and move back to your seat so that we can continue, if necessary, to minister to those that do not receive immediate deliverance. Some of you will be delivered instantly. Some of you are prepared. You came here tonight knowing that this was it and you were going to get it. And when you make your mind up, you get it. Now, that's all I'm going to say by way of prayer, except that there are some here. I see Brother Booth there. And there are others here that have helped me on previous occasions. And I want to say, brethren, if you feel led to help me, you're welcome, because it could be we'll need some. Now, I'm going to say this prayer. I suggest that you close your eyes and shut yourself in with the Lord. And everybody else, please be quiet and reverent. You say these words. Lord Jesus Christ, I believe that you are the Son of God, that you died on the cross for my sins, and rose again from the dead. I confess all my sins. I renounce all my sins. I renounce every contact with Satan and with evil spirits. I forgive every other person who ever harmed me or wronged me. I forgive them all now as I want you, Lord, to forgive me. Forgive me now and cleanse me in your blood. I believe that your blood now cleanses me from all my sins, and I thank you for it. And I come to you now, according to your word, for deliverance. You know the spirit that torments me, or binds me, or defiles me. I hate it. I count it my enemy. In the name of Jesus, I resist it, and I command it to leave me now. In Jesus' name, i let it go. Satan, in the name of Jesus, I come against those evil spirits, and I command them to come out of these people right now. Every tormenting demon that has been renounced by these people, I come against you in Jesus' name, and I command you to loose these people and come out of them in Jesus' name. Amen. Let them go. Let them go. You must do that much. Let it go. In the name of Jesus, Satan, this is the end of this message. Our website is www.